Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. The Economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Much of the COP climate summit starting today in Dubai will, as always, be dedicated to talk about reducing the emissions going into the atmosphere. We look at what will soon have to become a greater focus, pulling past emissions out of it. And it's that time of year again, our worldwide cost of living survey, where we rank the places where your money buys the most or the least. We'll go through which cities are up and which are down and which are changing the fastest. But first... I don't compare myself with Immanuel Kant, but Kant in his essay on universal peace said peace will come about in one of two ways, either through human understanding or through catastrophes of a magnitude that impel human understanding. And he didn't say which. When a 15-year-old Jewish boy named Heinz Kissinger fled Nazi Germany in 1938, few could have imagined how significantly his life and decisions would influence future conflicts. He and his family found refuge in America, where he quickly changed his name to Henry to fit in, though he kept a hold of his distinctive accent. We are on the path to great power confrontation. Henry Kissinger forever believed that effective diplomacy could avoid the kind of global conflict that had driven him from Germany. I started thinking about this very early on in my life. How to prevent such catastrophes from happening again? At Harvard University, he wrote a doctoral thesis on how diplomacy sustained stability in Europe for nearly a century after Napoleon's defeat. It got him noticed. Dr. Kissinger became National Security Advisor and then Secretary of State under President Nixon. Here is a man who has the poise, the strength, the character to serve in this great position and that he can handle himself under considerable fire. As we work for a world at peace, with justice, compassion, and humanity. We know that America, in fulfilling man's deepest aspirations, fulfills what is best within it. Thank you very much. He was acutely aware of just how much power and influence the role gave him. When I entered government, I turned out to be in a position in which my recommendation would be 
part of any final decision to go to war. We can all take credit for avoiding nuclear war for 75 years. That is an important achievement. But it was never explicitly negotiated that way. In 1973, he was awarded a Nobel Peace Prize for negotiating America's withdrawal from Vietnam. But it was hugely controversial. Some, including British author Christopher Hitchens, thought that Dr. Kissinger should be put on trial for his actions as Secretary of State. The context in which great men and statesmen and potentates can treat people as disposable. What's the charge has, has What's changed. your charge? Charges war crimes and crimes against humanity. Whatever you make of him, for decades Dr. Kissinger had a personal, sometimes clandestine impact on some of the biggest conflicts and decisions in world affairs. He's died aged 100 at his home, but his influence will live on. For someone who put so much effort into tirelessly presenting his own views of the world, Henry Kissinger was someone who was, I think, surprisingly misunderstood. Edward Carr is The Economist's deputy editor. He's often seen as the realist's realist, the arch exponent of a kind of heartless realpolitik that just looks and calculates foreign relations in, in almost inhuman terms. But I think he was someone uh, who had an important streak of idealism. And I think perhaps because of his early background as a refugee from Nazi Germany, I think Kissinger is someone who more or less devoted his life to trying to prevent a recurrence of superpower conflict. And he was willing to pay almost any price for that. And how do you think his ideas, as laid out over all of those decades, are reflected in the world today? Kissinger's big concern today was the state of relations between the United States and China. That, for him, is what replaced, in his life, being the central question, which was relations between the Soviet Union and the United States, and how to be able to keep the peace between these two nuclear superpowers. And it's an irony that it's China, because one of his great achievements, I think his crowning achievement actually, was to choreograph the visit of Nixon to China to meet Mao Zedong, where the US and China established relations, a huge moment in American foreign policy. And to see that after 50 years, relations between the US and China are once again dominating the world, but this time in a corrosive way, was something that deeply concerned him. And what were those ideas? How to avoid great power conflict then? I think to simplify it somewhat, he saw a number of steps. One was having a very hard-nosed and unemotional analysis of what's really going on in the relationship. And this is particularly, as an American, looking at the nature of China's rise. And he was very keen to assert that he thought that though China was discontent with some of the ways in which America's global norms obstructed China and restrained China, although China was unhappy with that, it didn't want fundamentally to dominate the world or start invading everywhere or impose its culture on everywhere. So his first point was that there was a room for the United States and China to find some sort of modus vivendi from the basic sort of approaches to the world. 
The second thing, I think, was a philosophy of live and let live. He thought that it was foolish to go out and try and make everybody like you, to impose your values on them, and that you should talk, you should approach the talks in quite a sort of low-key, secretive way often, so that you didn't stir up trouble and get people grandstanding to their domestic constituencies, and that there was lots of scope for the US and China to build a sense that they had a common responsibility and stewardship of the world. And then the last element was a stiffening element in it all was deterrence. And I think at least deterrence is important because you can't be confident. You can't exactly know what the other power really intends. So you need to keep the threat of deterrence in the background. And for Kissinger, that was one of the key things that nuclear weapons had done. It had stopped war, he thought, through deterrence. And I think in the context of China, he made it clear that the United States needed to be able to resort to war. That was the best way of keeping the peace. In fact, he thought that people who really wanted to change the world, they're the ones who tended to start wars, not the kind of sober analysts like him. This is a very peculiar kind of idealism. It's an idealism that wants to stop war, but is prepared to see all sorts of things happen in that cause. It's not the idealism of someone who won't tolerate human rights abuses. Kissinger was willing to subordinate all those things to his overwhelming goal of stability and fundamentally peace. And for that reason, he has ended up being an extremely controversial figure. I mean, it's a complicated legacy he leaves behind. I completely agree. He remains a very divisive figure. And I would say that he's at least as well known for accusations of being a war criminal, for tolerating, if not encouraging, the carpet bombing in Cambodia that killed tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people, for turning a blind eye to a genocide in Bangladesh because it it didn't suit his diplomacy with China. There's all sorts of charges against Kissinger, and those charges have merit to them. It's just I think they need to be seen in a broader context of a man who thought that his life's work was to keep peace between the superpowers, and which I think that goal he succeeded in. And thinking just about the ideas that got him to that goal, how can they be applied to the kinds of conflicts we're seeing right now in Ukraine? Kissinger had a very interesting analysis of the war in Ukraine. He started off in very Kissingerian way by being someone who thought that the West had a greater interest in keeping good relations with Russia. But he changed that view. And when we interviewed Kissinger at length about eight hours earlier this year, one I think it was one of his last really big interviews. He was fascinating on the subject because his take was that if Ukraine had this massive army with Western weapons and that it was disgruntled, it was a threat not just to Russia, but also to Europe and to NATO. And so he came to think that actually you needed to get Ukraine into NATO, not just to protect Ukraine from Russia, but also to protect the rest of NATO from what could be a very troubling rogue country if politics went sour in Ukraine. And I think that is a classic Kissinger insight. He's thinking beyond the obvious and thinking of contingencies that I think many people wouldn't have imagined. The thing about Kissinger's diplomacy, I think, though, is that he still reflects a world that I think has changed in a couple of really important ways. I mean, one is that he conducted a lot of his diplomacy in secret. 
I just don't think that's possible today. Everything is so open to recordings and cameras and everything so visible that the back-channel diplomacy that he did, I'm not sure you could manage that anymore. I think the other thing that's changed is that the Soviet-US rivalry was such an organising principle in the world that he could use that to sort of decide his hierarchy of plans and he used that as an organising principle. Well, I just think the world's much more complicated now, much harder to corral. And although the US-China relationship is absolutely fundamental to everything, it's not central to everything in the way that the US-Russia relationship is. So I think that Kissinger's main lessons are as a practitioner of how to think about doing diplomacy. But I think his style of diplomacy is harder today than it was 50 years ago. Edward, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Jason. Back in May, we ran a special episode that highlighted the best of the hours of interviews that Edward and Zanny Minton Beddoes, our editor-in-chief, carried out with Dr. Kissinger. Look, my life has been difficult, but it gives ground for optimism. I think to inspire the young generation, they need a demonstration of faith in the future. And that can be done. Dr. Kissinger, thank you. I won't be around to see it either way. (laughs) To hear much more from those interviews, scroll all the way back to our show on May 20th, or better yet, click the link in the show notes for today's episode. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Today, political leaders and climate negotiators from around the globe will cram into Expo City Dubai for the start of the 28th Conference of the Parties, or COP. The annual climate jamboree should be the best place to move global goals forward, to limit the damage, to plan for what's coming. But down the years, there's been a fair share of disappointment as each COP meeting ends in a scramble. There is frustration tonight after a two-week global conference on climate ends with no deal on a key concern. Is that despite all the effort being made here, things are going in the wrong direction. The United Nations Climate Summit ended in a monumental failure Sunday. Advances in the fight against climate change are being made, and in some cases, at astonishing speed, like with renewable energy, for example. Yet at the same time, global emissions are still on the rise. The agreement struck in Paris at the 2015 COP set a framework for a stock take of progress. That is in part what this COP is about. It also set a goal to limit global temperature rises. But to get anywhere near meeting it, plans have to go beyond just limiting the greenhouse gases being generated. One of the issues brewing at COP 
is carbon dioxide removal. Oliver Morton is The Economist's planetary affairs editor. Because it's absolutely necessary to achieve the goals of the Paris Agreement that was reached at COP21 eight years ago. Those goals include keeping temperature well below two degrees Celsius. And that was a pretty tall order back then. Right now, with 300 million tons more CO2 in the atmosphere, that's as much as the United States emitted throughout the 20th century. It's inconceivable that that two degree target can be hit without significant amounts of carbon dioxide removal. So when you say carbon dioxide removal, how is that done? What do you mean? Well, there are lots of different ways of taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, and people are adding to that range all the time. One of the obvious ways to go is to use the power of photosynthesis. The problem is that most carbon dioxide that comes out of the atmosphere through photosynthesis then goes back into the atmosphere when the plants and algae that did the photosynthesizing get eaten or decay. And so you can build up degraded forests, you can extend forests, but you aren't going to get the stable storage, durable storage, and you're not going to be able to get enough land to grow that much forest on. So there's a lot of work that you can do with biology, but you can't just fix it all by planting trees. So your other options are to either use the biology as raw material and instead of just letting it do its forest thing, taking the biomass and putting it underground in some physical form and then growing more biomass, some sort of like biomass plantation system. Or you can take the carbon dioxide directly out of the atmosphere or directly out of the oceans through some sort of chemical engineering process. And then you have pure carbon dioxide and you can pump that into some sort of geological storage. And all these things are being explored by various different companies around the world. Because, as you say, the the climate goals set at Paris simply aren't going to be met if that isn't part of the eventual equation. Yeah. By just cutting emissions, you're not going to get to two degrees. There's some greenhouse gas emissions that people really don't see any way of completely removing. One of them is nitrous oxide from soils. But there are a bunch of others. There are some industrial processes that it's very hard to see either the world living without or being done without emissions. So there will be some residual emissions. Those residual emissions need to be balanced out at some point by removals, and you need them on a reasonably large scale. We're talking about gigatons here and a billion tons. That's a lot. And if you look at the full palette of possible technologies to do this, humanity can get there. The back of the envelope suggests that carbon dioxide removal would, well plug the hole we've made? The back of the envelope might suggest that. It's sort of like the front of the checkbook that you need to worry about. This is all doable if you don't have to worry about how much it costs. If you have to worry about how much it costs, then, you know, it's very hard to predict how much something that we're currently doing very little of will cost at scale in 20 or 30 years. At the moment, carbon dioxide removal techniques other than managed forestry are removing on the order of a million tons or so of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. The thing you can be fairly sure of is that you won't be able to do it at scale in 20 or 30 years if you don't start working both on the technologies and on ideas about how to pay for them right now. So it seems clear that one industry that works at that kind of scale already and has deep pockets is the very industry that's put a lot of these emissions in the atmosphere to begin with. Yeah, you put your finger 
very much on the point here, Jason. The oil industry is quite interested in these technologies, and it is good at moving fluids from below the surface of the Earth to above the surface of the Earth, and it's reasonable to think that if you want to move fluids by the gigaton in the other direction, then these are the guys you're going to call. The problem with this is that the fossil fuel industry has not shown itself to be a good faith partner in many such issues beforehand. And there's a real concern that if the fossil fuel industry starts talking about carbon dioxide removal, then it will use the promise of someday doing so to justify continuing emitting now. And that's one of the reasons why people find carbon dioxide removal scary. And it's one of the things that COP really needs to act on. COP has these things called NDCs, Nationally Determined Contributions, which are what the countries say that they are going to do in order to further the goals of the Paris Agreement, and there'll be a new crop ready in 2025. And one of the things that is really important from a carbon dioxide removal point of view is that those NDCs should say what people are actually doing about carbon dioxide removal, not just say, yeah, we're in favor of it, but actually give some sort of like programmatics, because otherwise we move into the territory which was so brilliantly outlined by Bruce Springsteen 50 years ago, which is to ask ourselves, is a dream a lie if it don't come true, or is it something worse? We do not want carbon dioxide removal to be something worse. You're making it sound as if this is going to be the central topic of discussion, negotiation, argument at COP this year. Ah, the glory of COP, Jason. There's never a central discussion that's actually about a thing that's actually going to end up happening, except occasionally. No, this is going to be an issue at COP, and it's going to be an issue that will possibly develop a certain amount of salience precisely because of the role that the fossil fuel lobbies will have at a COP that is being held in a petro state. But it's not going to be central. There's going to be a whole lot of other things that people are going to be having more near-term battles about. But this is an issue that is definitely growing in salience. And we also anticipate that it's going to reinvigorate discussions about pricing carbon because you cannot really run a carbon dioxide removal service unless someone somewhere has a very clear idea of how much it costs to remove a ton of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So if that is not, in fact, the central issue, or at least not yet, what would you be looking out for to call it a successful COP then? Well, I think the thing we're most interested in in the near term is a big, ambitious target for global methane reductions. But I think beyond that, going up to Paris, there wasn't a real agreement under the Framework Convention on Climate Change that said what the goals were and how to get to them. Paris provided that in an imperfect way, but it did. So all COPs are now sort of like implementations of bits of Paris and attempts to make ambitions stronger. And you have to see them now as sort of like a series with some sort of like particular highlights, but you have to see them as a series. And you have to bear in mind what Max Weber said, that politics is the slow boring of hard boards. This is tough stuff. And it's pretty hard to tell immediately whether a cop has been, quote, a success or a failure. What's important is that it leaves something more for the next cops to build on. Oliver, thanks very much for your time. Thanks very much, Jason. It's a pleasure. Oliver and my colleagues over on Babbage, our weekly subscriber-only science and tech show, took a deep dive this week into carbon dioxide removal and how a market for it could, needs to, take shape. 
To listen, you'll need to be a subscriber to our print or digital editions or to Economist Podcasts Plus. For more on how to sign up, head to the show notes. When it comes to how far a paycheck goes, it seems that just about everybody in the world is feeling the pinch, but more in some places than in others. Our sister company, the Economist Intelligence Unit, has just published its twice-yearly Worldwide Cost of Living Survey. It's a guide to the most expensive and the cheapest places to hang your hat. This year, our survey showed that lots of cities across the world are struggling with a cost-of-living crisis. Anna Nichols is the Economist Intelligence Unit's industry director. Prices on average across the basket of goods that we surveyed had risen by 7.4% year on year for 200 or so commonly used goods and services. That's slightly lower than it was last year when it was 8.1%. But it still shows that some of those supply chain disruptions that we saw during the pandemic and also the effect of higher interest rates and Russia's invasion of Ukraine are still having an effect on prices. And so that inflation rate, 7.4%, is a lot higher than it was in 2017 to 2022 before that invasion of Ukraine. Right. And uh, the meat of this report is sort of picking apart where things are uh, changing. Where in the world are, are prices the highest at the moment? Well, Singapore is still the world's most expensive city. This time it's tied with Zurich in Switzerland, which is back at the top after three years. Singapore has actually been top about nine times in the last 11 years. So it's just a perennially expensive city to live in. New York was first last year, but it's now down to third place, um, where it's tying with Geneva, also in Switzerland, like Zurich. And in all, actually, Western Europe has four cities in the top 10 cities in our World Cost of Living Index. So in Western Europe this year, we've seen some sticky inflation, particularly around groceries, clothing, personal care. Plus, because our survey indexes everything against the US dollar, the fact that the euro has appreciated against the dollar in the past year has also buoyed Western Europe up their rankings. And what about where prices are the lowest then? Well, Damascus, which is the capital of Syria, is still the cheapest city in the world. It nearly always comes bottom of our survey. It's not surprising, really, considering there's the ongoing effects of the civil war. But this year, in particular, there's been a devaluation of the local currency, which, again, because we measure against US dollars, does bring down the cost of living. Actually, in local currency terms, inflation is pretty high in Damascus, but still not enough to take it off the bottom of our rankings. So not a whole lot of movement then at the very top or the very bottom. Where are the big changes? In terms of the cities that are moving up the rankings, quite a lot of them are European cities for the reasons that I've mentioned. But the biggest leaps have been in Latin America, particularly Mexican cities, partly because of currency effects. So the peso has been strengthening against the US dollar because of interest rate rises. Obviously, the US has had interest rate rises, but actually Latin America moved up at least as fast as the US in terms of interest rates. 
In general, the other end of the scale, Moscow and St. Petersburg in Russia have seen the biggest drop in the rankings. And that's partly because the effect of the sanctions imposed after the invasion of Ukraine have weakened the ruble this year. And the ruble had stayed really strong last year, despite those sanctions. What's also been interesting, though, is that Chinese cities have fallen down our rankings quite a lot. So they've got four cities on the list of the biggest movers down. And that's partly because of currency depreciation against the US dollar again. But it's also because there has been a relatively slow economic recovery there post-pandemic. So consumer demand has been pretty subdued and that has therefore brought down the prices in that country as well. So clearly Russia's invasion of Ukraine still having an effect a year later on, on these numbers in Russia. But what about more broadly? Yes, Russia's invasion of Ukraine definitely still impacting prices. What's interesting is in Western Europe, actually, some of those utility price rises that we saw last year are now starting to slow down. So that impact is actually waning. But on the other hand, the impact that um, the invasion had on food prices is still really quite strong. So in terms of the categories in our survey, grocery prices saw the strongest inflation. And that's partly due to the difficulties in shipping grain out of Russia and Ukraine and the impact that that's having on the cost of living, particularly in developing countries. This year, we did actually include Kiev in this year's survey. Um, It's fallen actually down to 132nd place in the index, which is far below where it was in 2021 before the invasion. Last year, we couldn't do the survey because of that invasion. And in fact, we're not therefore including it in the average inflation calculation because we don't have a comparative than last year. There's also another city that we're not including in the average inflation calculation, which is Caracas, where inflation is a quite stonking 450% this year. And that would obviously skew the global results if we included that. And so with this year's basket of data in hand, get your crystal ball out. What do you expect for the year ahead? Well, the year ahead is looking promising in terms of inflation in developed countries. So we're expecting inflation in developed countries to fall down below 3%. And therefore, that will have an impact on our our cost of living survey. In developing countries, it's likely to have a slightly different impact because, as I mentioned, food prices are still really sticky. And obviously, in developing countries, food accounts for a much larger share of um, consumer spending. There's also some quite big risks around inflation. Obviously, the Israel-Hamas war could drive up energy prices. It already has to some extent. It could do further if it escalated. And then there's El Nino, the weather phenomenon we have to take into account. And that, again, would further increase food prices. So regional disparities in terms of inflation are likely to increase. Overall, we're expecting the cost of living crisis to ease slightly and a global level. But in some countries, there will still be quite persistent inflation. And I expect Caracas is going to be one of those. Anna, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. We'll see you back here tomorrow.
Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.